Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Leslie Dock, Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Government Relations for Walmart Stores Inc., speaking about Walmart's sustainability initiatives as part of the Yale Sustainable Food Project's Fall 2007 Chewing the Fat Speaker and Events Series, sponsored by the George and Shelley Lazarus Fund for Sustainable Food and Agriculture at Yale. It's nice to be here. Every other time I've been up here in the last few years, it's been gray and rainy, which is how I remember it. So to see it sunny is a great thing.、Um, it's great to also have a chance to be、uh, to be here today to be able to speak both to people who uh, uh, are, have a passion about leadership and about business, and also a passion about the、um, environment. And I do want to talk broadly about sustainability and the role of business in sustainability, the kind of change process that、uh, we've used at Walmart. Uh, and then also to talk specifically about some of the、uh, steps that this one particular company is taking, both to change its own environmental footprint, but hopefully to have a broader effect、uh, around the world, and also、uh, a broader effect within the, the business community as a whole.、Um, I just want to give you a sense of kind of how where I am in coming to this job, because I think it'll give you a sense of how I've tried to think about this. So I graduated from Yale now、uh, a little over 30 years ago,、um, and my career has basically been in environmental advocacy. So I worked as a, a lobbyist both for environmental defense and for the Audubon Society、uh, in democratic politics. I've、uh, worked on seven、uh, democratic presidential campaigns,、uh, worked in the Clinton White House,、uh, various things, including being the communications director for the conflict in Kosovo. Spent a long time. Uh, in um, pri- uh, public relations for a global public relations company, but for all that, for me personally, the environment's been part of the passion that I've had from an issue standpoint uh, uh, throughout that career. And so I've served on the boards of a handful of environmental organizations. Currently on the board of the World Resources Institute, and at Edelman began to get much more involved in、uh, the way corporations can play a role. And actually, my first client at Edelman was、uh, Starkist Tuna, and we. Work with them to change their、uh, dolphin, uh, their uh, policy to become the first tuna company to become dolphin safe.、Uh, back,、uh, this is back in the、um, uh, uh, in the 80s. And one of my last assignments at Edelman before coming to Walmart was to help craft and design eco imagination with Jeff Immel at GE. And so I, I think I've tried to get over time a sense of、uh, by working in government, not for profits and corporations, how how organizations affect change、um, from all of those platforms.、Um, I also want to let me benchmark Walmart for a second because I think、um, it's just important to recognize for a sense, as many people do, the, the size and the scale and the footprint. So we are the world's largest retail company. We finished last year at about $350 billion in revenue. So we're three or four times as big as our really as our next competitor, and also have the largest global footprint,、uh, operating now in about 13 countries around the world. Where we're the largest retailer in Mexico, the largest foreign retailer in China, largest retailer in Central America. Largest retailer in Canada, and the third largest in the UK. We're America's largest private employer. There's about 1.3、um, million、uh, Walmart associates in the United States. Two million、um, uh, associates or employees worldwide. And when it comes to sustainability, we have one of the world's largest and one of America's largest truck fleets. Over 7,000 tractors and trailers on the road, and we are the、uh, America's largest user of pri- purchaser of private、uh, electricity. So we're the largest non-governmental user of electricity in the United States due to the. Our footprint, which is basically about 4,000 stores around the country,、um, so in a given year we're adding in the U.S. somewhere around 25 to 30 million square feet of of,、um, of space. So sustainability is an issue that、um, Walmart's become quite passionate about over the last、uh, two years. What I want to walk people through is a sense of the journey of how the company got there, some of the steps that it's taking, some of the ways it's organized itself to make meaningful change,、uh, and some of the ways we're interacting outside of our own footprint、um, into the world. Um, and I hope that you'll get a sense of that、uh, about the contribution and the role of business today,、uh, and also the role that other institutions play together in, in dealing with very large and complicated global problems. I,、um, I think one of the questions that、um, we always get is, you know, what is the right role of business today?、Um, we、um, were speaking at the Clinton Global Initiative、uh, opening plenary, and that was President Clinton's. Question to our CEO: What is the role of business today, and has that changed, and why? And I think the sense that I have actually explains part of my personal reason for joining a company like Walmart is that if you're、uh, we're involved in trying to change U.S. policy on healthcare or healthcare reform, sustainability or global warming, you couldn't really、uh, live in Washington D.C. and be very confident that that town was going to make a difference. Uh, over the next set of years, whether you were a Democrat or a Republican, you weren't seeing much action on Capitol Hill. You weren't seeing much action
uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue. And, I, and so you said to yourself, if you're trying to really affect change in some of these large problems, what kind of institutions can do that? And what we've also seen from the public is that if you look at poll after poll all around the world, the public has lost faith in government, lost faith in, the, faith in the media to solve these big problems because they see that there's been partisanship over progress in government. In many instances, as you know, where the media has kind of lost faith with people. Uh, and so those institutions are no longer looked at uh, around the globe as really providing solutions. At the same time, the, the sense around the world that business can play a role in solving these big problems um, has grown. And um, I think that the, you know, part of the reason why is important to think about, particularly where we're sitting today, it's because business is action-oriented. Uh, it's because it, it, it gets things done. It's, it's, it's there to execute uh, against metrics. And that drives a lot more results, uh, typically, than, um, than governments do. Um, it's also very performance-based, uh, so that it, it does understand how to set goals and meet them, measure against them, and devise systems um, um, to get there. Also, it's, it, it's global in reach. On the same CGI panel that we spoke at, you had the president of uh, the World Bank, the president of uh, Afghanistan, the president of the Philippines, Al Gore, Desmond Tutu, uh, Bill Clinton, and Lee Scott. And when you look across that range of representation, uh, everybody on that dais has a role to play, but very few of them actually have global reach. Um, and so large corporations, because they do operate both from a sourcing perspective and from a Walmart's case, a retail perspective around the world, they can affect a change that's global in nature, and in a sense, much more so than many, uh, many governments uh, can. Also, business is accountable on a regular basis, so we're accountable every day in the stores. I wake up on my little trio, and we look to see how the stores around the world did yesterday compared to the same day a year ago. Uh, the, retail is a very quick-moving business. There's a lot of competition. People have a lot of alternatives, so you're really benchmarked every day uh, by the foot traffic in your stores. Uh, and you're benchmarked uh, on Wall Street, obviously, uh, as well. So I think people understand that innately, and that's why you see this sort of rise in confidence uh, in business being able to solve these problems. There's a recognition of the role and responsibility of business. There's also a recognition more and more of the limitations governments have, both because of just you know, the way they're structured and the issues they have to deal with in politics and getting some of these um, things done. So at Walmart... Um, let me also sort of benchmark, I think, some and level set kind of where we are in public, you know, sort of satisfaction, because I think there's in many ways often an incorrect view of kind of the, just the favorability and unfavorability of the company. So as you can imagine, we do a fair amount of looking at this. And so the basic favorable, unfavorable rating of Walmart as a, as a store across the entire population is about 6630. So 66% uh, of people uh, have a favorable impression of Walmart, 30% have an unfavorable impression of Walmart. And over the last three or four years that I've looked at these numbers, that's basically unchanged. Now, when you look at the people who shop at Walmart, and 130 million Americans shop at Walmart in a given week, it's about 90% of the U.S. population has been in a Walmart store in the last year, the favorability amongst people who say that they're regular or occasional shoppers is, cl is closer to 85-10. So a lot of you know if you, a lot of folks are lab, you know believe that it's an unpopular place, but actually on any polling measure, it's actually an extremely popular place. And 85% of the people who shop there, you know, 66% of all Americans have a favorable view um, of the company. Um, and um, that and, and we can talk a little bit about um, why that is. But Walmart's journey towards sustainability really began as it looked at itself in its response to Katrina. So many of you may remember that uh, Walmart um, made a major effort both in cash but more importantly on the ground contribution in Katrina to deliver goods and services, to deliver water, to open stores up, to use the stores as a neighborhood locus for rebuilding uh, New Orleans. And the company then began to look at itself through that positive experience and say, what other areas in which we operate can we make that kind of positive difference? And for a variety of reasons, both the CEO's passion and other analytics, it became clear that sustainability was a place where the company's footprint and the way it did business uh, could really make, uh, make a difference. And so it said to itself, we understand uh, that we have an opportunity to lead, but also um, because of the scrutiny that the company deservedly gets in the public as the world's largest corporation, uh, we also recognize that we have a responsibility to lead. And sustainability was an area where we could uh, effectively step up to that um, to that responsibility. So I think it's, you know, as, you, as a business looks at what its role could be and you try and have a strategy for figuring out of all the things you can do, even in an issue like sustainability, where do you do it? 
It's my belief that the first place you start is with a company's mission. And Walmart's mission is very straightforward. Its global mission statement is that we save people money so they can live better. And the notion is that by reducing the prices of, of, of the things that people buy, um, they can uh, improve their own uh, standard of living um, and that we can reduce uh, uh, the costs of these goods uh, around the world. And I think what's important to know also about Walmart particularly is that it does serve, a, in a sense, a, a, a less financially successful customer. Uh, so the average uh, family income of a Walmart customer is somewhere about $45,000 a year. Um, and, is a, as so in t and the Walmart customer, um, in many ways, lives from paycheck to paycheck. And so if you look at these same store comps that I was talking about, you can very clearly see on my little trio that as you get to the end of the month, um, people stop shopping at a Walmart store. And on October 1st and October 2nd, it comes right back up. And there, it's a population that's particularly pressed press today. It's pressed because of high energy costs, increasing food inflation, uh, and uh, the downturn in the housing market. And so, you know, if, you, if you're in the retail business today you wanna, and you're just looking at same-store comps, which is the core measure, you'd you know, rather be working at Neiman's or Saks, who are doing 11% same-store comps. But the stores that are that, who's, uh, uh, primarily focus on folks who, for whom uh, uh, money really matters are just in a tougher place in America today. But you know, one of the things I like about Walmart is that if you try to understand your customer and you go out to the store, you sit down at the Blimpies or the McDonald's or the Subway in that store uh, with people who are making thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. Um, and so you really have to understand uh, what's important to them and, and what motivates them. It is, and that's also true in the environment. So if you look at, there's a big difference kind of between, in a sense, what GE's customer is and eco-imagination and what Walmart's customer is. When you look at GE's customer, you're looking at what Jeff Immelt does. When he meets with a customer who's buying one of his products, he's meeting with the president of an airline, uh, the head of a uh, energy company, uh, the head of a railroad company. And so that's the customer that he's dealing with, buying large, expensive things. The customer we're dealing with is going in and buying some food, and maybe buying something in general merchandise. And their average ticket, they may be spending 40 or $60 at the store. Uh, they're not buying a $20 million jet engine or a $500 million uh, gas turbine. And so we started this by saying that our customer uh, is a customer to whom the value of a dollar or a peso or an RMB really means something in their lives. And they go to Walmart because they need the value that this store provides uh, for them. And in many cases, they don't have any luxury of choice. Uh, they can't afford and they won't pay more for a sustainable product. They won't pay more for an organic product. They won't uh, pay more for a compact fluorescent light bulb. They can't afford the, the payback period um, for those things. So we have built our process sustainability around that understanding of our customer and the core belief that we think that our customers should not have to choose between a, between a product they can afford and a product uh, that's healthy for the planet and healthy for their family. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is to use our economic model to drive the costs out of sustainable products so that a person who makes $40,000 a year and their family can have the same access to healthier products, organic foods, and can make the same difference in the world uh, as somebody else. And that's the core that we've tried to use um, to drive uh, this approach. Before getting into any of the specifics, let me you know, try and give a bit of a sense of, of how, the lessons we've learned and how we've tried to organize ourselves as a business uh, to do this, because it's a, it's a big enterprise. And um, I think the first thing that we've learned is that you have to work with your critics and open your doors up. And you can imagine, particularly Walmart, being a company in, a small, in, in rural America, um, was not really used to opening its doors up and, and doing stakeholder outreach. And the first thing that the company learned, uh, and learned actually its partners had to learn the same thing, um, is that you can uh, the, really learn a lot from people and that the best way to get results is to let your enemies in the door. And so the way we've organized to, uh, uh, on sustainability is through uh, 14 sustainable value networks. There's a network on lumber, a network on textiles, a network on fish, a network on uh, China. And in all of those networks, what we've tried to do is to include NGOs, so Greenpeace and the Marine Stewardship Council, for example, would be on the fish uh, um, uh, sustainable value network, along with our big suppliers like Unilever and others, uh, as well as our own associates. And we've tried to organize these in a very bottoms-up way. So I think another thing that's really been a hallmark of why 
sustainability has caught on at Walmart is because we are we're, these committees are not made up necessarily of the sort of officers of the company, but they're made up of the people who work in the stores who are responsible for those day-to-day buying decisions. And by bringing uh, those people together in one place, working with suppliers and with NGOs, um, we can make, we found, a much bigger difference. And by doing it in a bottom-up uh, fashion. The, this slide here is an example of the same approach we've tried, tried to take on healthcare. So you just see in this picture Lee Scott, the CEO of Walmart on the left, John Podesta, uh, President Clinton's last uh, 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 chief of staff, Senator Howard Baker in the corner, and Andy Stern, the uh, head of the SCIU. And so we found that, um, uh, that by working together with people, even with folks that we might not normally be perceived as being able to work together with, or they be able to work together with us, we can achieve uh, much greater change. The most recent example of a partnership that uh, we've worked on is something we announced last uh, Monday uh, at, uh, in New York with a carbon disclosure product. And it's one of the things that I, I think in the long term may make one of the largest differences that we're going to make on this issue as a company. And that is that we are working with the Carbon Disclosure Project to establish a protocol so that our suppliers will now begin to tell us how much carbon-based energy uh, they're putting into the production and life cycle of their products. So they will begin to report uh, transparently through to us um, how much energy is in the manufacture, use, and even the recharging of your uh, computer. Because in many ways, you know, if you look at a television set, for example, a lot of the electricity in an intelligence television set isn't in the manufacture and the use. It's the fact that it's always on. So you go and push your the you know, remote control button on your uh, uh, flat screen TV. It, t- it goes on like this, and that's because it's always burning some electricity um, in the background, or your hard disk is always on uh, in your computer. So we're working with our suppliers of the Carbon Disclosure Project so that we'll begin, I think, for the first time in the world, for people to begin to measure this and report it so that over time we can work uh, with these suppliers to help them reduce the amount of non-renewable energy in all the products that they uh, make for us. Another key lesson that we learned as a business is that we had to make sustainability sustainable within Walmart. And we work to make sustainability live in the business so that it's not an add-on kind of that, you know, you report on once a quarter or something you have to tell the CEO when you see him. Uh, but it's something that's very integrated in the business. And so we have asked all the sustainability, uh, sustainable value networks to create business plans that tell us what they're going to deliver to the bottom line. So what they're going to deliver in terms of increased efficiency, energy savings, reduced cost of goods because the packaging is less. And we build those promises right into the P&L. And so if you're sitting there and you're operating the Walmart store division and you're trying to figure out how much you can spend on all sorts of other things, you know that the sustainability folks have have put $50 million into your bottom line or $100 million into your bottom line. And so they're held accountable for delivering that, um, that money. We also, in our packaging initiatives, which I'll talk about, you know, one of the things we want to do is to create incentives um, for our um, suppliers to reduce their packaging. So by making the cost of packaging transparent, they reduce their own costs. But at the same time, frankly, we want to know what the cost of packaging are. So if we're working with suppliers and they reduce the cost of packaging, we want to pay less for those products. And what's most important is we want our customers to pay less. Because if our customers can pay less for a product that has less packaging, they'll buy products with less packaging. Uh, so they have to see the price differential um, on the shelf. And the way we can translate that price differential from you know, a vague request uh, to the charge is by uh, having the companies be very transparent. So we want to know if we're, that if we're buying uh, uh, um, detergent that has less packaging, how much P&G is saved as a result, and so that we can save money when we pay for that detergent, and, and therefore we can charge less money on the shelves. And by doing all that, what we've tried to do is make sustainability sustainable within Walmart. So if the economy changes, we're in a rough patch. Uh, we, it, this isn't a luxury that gets thrown out. It's not something, you know, that's a sort of a altruistic drill um, on its own. It's really something that we've be- embedded in the business. It's in a core part for us uh, of doing business. Uh, and that we won't second-guess this commitment. We have to say sustainability uh, in tough times. I think it's also important for people to real- recognize, I think about this, that the consumer today is probably the least important part of this, particularly, as I said, the Walmart customer. The Walmart customer doesn't really care about the environment. The Walmart customer, for the most part, is making decisions about how, you know, how large a, uh, a package of American cheese they can afford this um, you know, today. So if you, you know, one of the interesting things you see at the store is that you know, people will come in at the end of the, as the month wanes. They'll still buy American cheese, but instead of buying the 24-pack, they'll pay more to buy the 8-pack because the 8-pack is all they could afford. Um, and so interestingly, what we're doing today in sustainability isn't about driving sales. It's really not even about the brand. Uh, because that right now, 
customers don't make choices about retail stores in the price. In the, in the, they might if they can afford to go to you know, Whole Foods, but if they can't afford to go to Whole Foods and they're shopping at Walmart, they're not, that whether a store is green or sustainable is just not important to them. So this is not today a, a, a customer or a brand-driven enterprise. And companies that are doing, that, are, that would try and design themselves and their sustainability efforts against the, in order to drive top-line sales or to do something about the brand won't be doing very much because that just, that just isn't there. Now, I mean, we hope five years from now it is there. We hope that five years from now uh, Walmart could be known uh, as a place to go for more sustainable products. But today, you know, a dollar spent against that is, is for the most part, um, a dollar wasted. Um, another thing I think that was important for us and important for all businesses when they're doing this is to recognize that you don't have all the answers. So when, we, when the CEO first established uh, our three goals, which was to basically have zero waste at the stores, uh, to use only renewable energy, uh, and to sell only sustainable products, we had almost no idea how to get there, how long it would take, or what the incremental steps to be there. Uh, in some of these cases, we didn't have great metrics uh, to measure it. So we began to translate those into, uh, uh, into uh, shorter-term goals. But we were willing to sort of get out there and open ourselves up knowing we didn't know how to get there. The, and this, I think, also mimics the debate, as people know about kind of in the regulatory community, about whether you have sort of uh, performance-based standards or, or, uh, or specify specific technologies on a coal-fired power plant, for example. But certainly what we found in this case is that by uh, creating goals and then opening up innovation, uh, we found much more interesting and much more innovative ways to get to those goals than if we had um, specified something more um, more concrete. Um, the other thing that we've done is we've understood that you have to have kind of an internal mechanism to do this, to drive change. And the way that we do that is both through the sustainability value networks, also through our CEO. If you hear any of his speeches or you go to any meetings with him, it's, it's one of the major things that he's passionate about and holds people accountable for. But we also have quarterly milestone meetings where we get everybody in the company who's very engaged in this, six, 800 people, our suppliers, the NGOs that we work with. And so, for example, Environmental Defense now has opened an office in Bentonville because they feel that they get more ROI by having somebody in Bentonville to work with us uh, than they might by adding two more people in Washington, D.C. Um, and so we get together as a group, and by knowing that every quarter, and, and all of us, there are eight of us who work for the CEO, that, all, that everybody uh, of us has to be there and participate in that meeting and have something new to say, uh, it drives the organization to deliver against these milestones. Um, and uh, we've had Al Gore there uh, to speak. Uh, the, the next milestone meeting is next week, and um, we have uh, now about 250 of our supplier CEOs or COOs coming to Bentonville to engage with us about how they can uh, um, help us be more sustainable through the products they create for us. So we've tried to establish inside the company systems and mechanisms for ongoing involvement, recognition, and, um, in a sense, enforcement. And as you can imagine, we've also found this is very popular with our associates. It's also been a great way to take people who normally don't have a job description that has them coming up with global solutions because they're just buying detergent. Um, and now all of a sudden they have an opportunity to operate on a global scale uh, and to cut across the silos. So it's, it's just an excellent sort of uh, uh, executive experience uh, for people where they can demonstrate to the company that they know how to solve problems. I think probably the greatest lesson you know, that the company learned uh, and the, maybe the greatest lesson we preach uh, is that I think when the company started this, a lot of people said, you know, there's going to be a conflict between what you're doing on sustainability uh, and, and running the, the, the Walmart business model, an everyday low-cost, everyday low-price business model. But what we found is that there is no conflict, uh, that we're able to run our business, save people money so they can live better. We can run an everyday low-price, everyday low-cost business model, uh, and we can uh, succeed as a company and do very interesting things on sustainability. And my belief is that's true for every uh, uh, company uh, 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 that operates, uh, you know, at some point in time, that's going to get more difficult. But with the amount of uh, energy costs that any company can, day, can, day, can reduce today, the amount of increased efficiency that people can put in the system, the amount of packaging you can take out of what you make, there is a long, long way to go uh, before uh, um, uh, you run into uh, uh, some of these conflict issues. And by then, technology will have changed to even further reduce those. So let me talk a little bit about what the company um, um, has done and start with the, start with the footprint uh, of the company. As I mentioned, we operate about 4,000 stores uh, in the U.S. We're the world, America's largest uh, private user of electricity. Um, we have about 7,000 trucks on the road. The majority of our footprint's in electricity. You know, if you go to a store, 
uh, basically, uh, you got, and you go to a grocery store, you use a lot of electricity. You got to light the place. You got to heat the place. It's pretty big. It has tall ceilings. Uh, you got to light the parking lot 24 hours a day. You have to have signs outside. You got to keep the food cold. Uh, and so we use a lot of electricity. And, and then a little bit of it in trucking, but most of it's uh, in, in the stores themselves. And interestingly, as you, you know, as you be, as you, a company like Walmart has moved from having been a discount store with no food uh, to add a food store, your, uh, your um, energy intensity per square foot goes up. Uh, because, you know, in a grocery store, you have freezer cases and you're cooling milk. Uh, and in a discount store, you've got stuff on the shelves. It doesn't require any uh, refrigeration. So as you add grocery to your business, you've given yourselves substantial new challenges in energy efficiency. So as I mentioned, the goals that the company set for itself kind of aspirationally was to be supplied 100% by renewable energy, to create zero waste, and to sell products that sustain resources and the environment. And then we sort of dropped that down to intermediate goals. So the first thing we set on renewable uh, energy was that we were going to make our footprint 20% more efficient. Our new stores would be 30% more energy efficient. We would retrofit the old stores to be 20% more energy efficient. The first step on creating zero waste uh, was to have enhanced recycling and to um, reduce our packaging, and I'll talk about some of those things. And on the product side, we've translated that both through packaging and some of the individual products like CFLs that I'll, I'll talk about. And we promised that we would double the fuel efficiency of these trailers in the course of three years. And um, I'll go through just, you know, give you some sense of the different ways that gets done. And to me, I spent a lot of time uh, meeting with mayors and with people, uh, the, the person who's in charge of like greening the capital in Washington. And I think the most interesting thing of all these things that they hear from us is that all of these energy investments we've made pay back within two years. So all the things we're talking about go just make complete sense to the bottom line in any time frame that anybody making these decisions outside of a person maybe buying them for their own home on limited or fixed income uh, can clearly make. So just some of the things we're doing. So if you look at the trucks, the first thing we did is we, um, we shut down these auxiliary power units. So if you're, you know, if you're ever in a rest stop late at night and the diesel guy's sleeping in his truck, they're basically you know, running this generator all uh, all night long, we basically shut those down. So just by shutting, um, um, uh, I'm sorry, just by, by adding auxiliary power units so they can actually shut the truck down, because what they were doing is they were running the truck engine all night to fuel the air conditioning so they could sleep. So if, if you just do something like that, we, you know, we will get rid of 100,000 tons of carbon dioxide. We'll save ourselves 10 million gallons of diesel fuel, uh, which is about $25 million a year, and we'll reduce um, the, those greenhouse gases. Um, we're also... Um, if you, you'll start seeing our trucks, we'll start having funny-looking aerodynamic fins around the back. So now you see, you know, you see spoilers on the back of sports cars. Well, soon you're going to see trucks that just have, like, spoilers on them on the side and the back. And that can increase fuel efficiency by 5 to 8 percent uh, at highway speeds. Um, and we are also now beginning to work with some of the large trucking companies uh, to develop for the first time heavy-duty diesel hybrids. Uh, which will have another dramatic effect on energy usage. And all of these technologies that we're developing, what's interesting about it is because we're such a large purchaser, we basically drive that market. So the people who are developing these fins, they'll develop these fins, sell them to us, and now all of a sudden their R&D costs are totally covered, and they can sell them um, somewhere else. So we're able to really effectively drive uh, change and drive the development of new products. And if you want to understand kind of what drives us about that in addition to the goal, so if we save one mile per gallon on the fuel fleet, we're putting $52 million back into our bottom line. So if we look at all these energy efficiency mechanisms and we can add them up and, uh, and, and save one gallon, uh, then we're saving $52 million a year every year moving forward. And that's why those things pay back. We've also begun to make a more significant investment in, in renewables. You'll, if you were in California or in Hawaii, we're starting to put solar uh, on top of stores. Uh, and when we're complete with that in the next year or two, Walmart will probably be one of the top five commercial users of solar um, uh, in the world. And um, we will, um, each of those solar systems on the roof is going to provide about 30% of the electricity in one, that we eat in one of our stores, and each of them will reduce greenhouse gases by about 10,000 tons a year. And they pay back on the first day. So the first day you plug that solar into the building, you're saving money. And a chunk of that is, frankly, because the solar manufacturers get you know, there's an array of tax benefits and other credits they get from the federal government. We don't get them. They do. Uh, we just basically buy the electricity from them. But it pays back on the first. It's renewable and pays back on the first day. Another thing you'll see when you go into some of the stores um, is um, that we now have replaced almost all the lighting with LED lighting. It's about 50% more efficient than even the most efficient um, uh, T8 
fluorescent bulbs. And what we've done in, um, in the freezer cases, if you walk by them, is that they, um, they're on motion sensors. So they all shut off uh, if no one's there. And when you show it, there's a wide angle sensor. And if you walk up to the freezer case, the LED lights go on. And the other great, th and what you discover when you do these things are all sorts of things you weren't thinking of. So not only are LEDs cheaper, uh, but they don't warm the food. So you don't have to sort of overcool the food. Uh, they last as long as the freezer case itself, so you don't have to replace them. And then what the amazing thing is, in some ways, is you sell more frozen food. Because I think all of you know who go shopping, and you stand in that freezer aisle, you get pretty cold. And you stand in the freezer aisle, and you get pretty cold, and so you walk through it quickly. But now what we've done is we've encased all those. There's no open freezer compartments. So when you walk in, all the freezers have doors. The LED lights make it cheap, and people linger in the frozen food aisle because they're not cold anymore, and they end up buying more frozen food. So it pays back in electricity, but also simply pays back in the fact that people buy more frozen food, which is something we didn't know about before we started. If you go into a Walmart store and you look up, you'll see all the new stores have um, uh, skylights and something we call daylight harvesting. So all the skylights have sensors on them. They're tied back to the computers in Bentonville. And, as the, and, all, the, and all the lights, the uh, fluorescents are T8, high efficiency and, uh, fluorescence. And as, the, as more sunlight goes in, comes through the roof, the computers dim the fluorescent lights. And at night, from not, even though we're open 24 hours, the light goes down about 50% at night. And so you can save, you know, we're saving 10, 20% of our electrical bills just by daylight harvesting and tying it back to the computers. And if you went to one of our stores in China, one of the issues you'd see is because in, in, in China, in Beijing, the stores are uh, not our freestanding stores. They're in the basement or the first level of an office building. You can't use natural light. Uh, like you can in America. And it's one of the challenges as you travel around the world of why some of these things aren't are, uh, replicable. Um, we've also uh, uh, are starting to build uh, experimental stores. So if you went to McKinney, Texas, uh, or uh, Aurora, Colorado, you would see, what, or Kansas City, you'd see these high efficiency stores where basically all the innovations we're coming up with are in one place. So if you went to McKinney, Texas, we use the used French fry oil to partially heat the, um, the building. Uh, we have new ceramic paint on the building. Uh, that uh, uh, reflects sun. Uh, you'd see uh, wind power uh, in the parking lot. Um, you'd see uh, now we're beginning to have actually small turbines on some of the lighting poles uh, in the parking lot. LED lights, small wind turbines, the, the, the electric, electricity to run those uh, nights, the lights at night in the parking lots is slowly but surely turning to wind. If you went to the um, uh, flower beds, it's all recycled uh, tires for mulch. And all the rainwater is collected, uh, collected in a pond, so it neither runs off and then it's used for gray water within the building. And all those things, as I mentioned, pay right back. So there's this, there's, with, when you put an innovation in this and you, and you ask the right questions of the people who build these stores for you, when you ask them how they can build them more efficiently, when you ask them how they can put some of these things in, they find answers. So that's just a, a kind of a sense of... Uh, um, um, of the footprint. But I think what we really found to me that's the most interesting is that really our footprint's the smallest part of the promise. Um, that really where Walmart's effectiveness can be uh, is in something we call Sustainability 360, which is to work with our suppliers around the world to green their supply chains, to educate our customers to make more sustainable choices, to reduce the price of, of, uh, of sustainable products so people don't have to make that choice. Uh, to take our 1.4 million associates and help them lead more sustainable lives, uh, to go into communities. If you, for example, if there was a front page story in the uh, business uh, section of the New York Times yesterday about how we're going in and sourcing fair trade coffee uh, in Central America so that we can work in the communities in which uh, and make a difference there. And that's, I think, really where, for me, um, the power of this is and where the interest is and where the size and scale of a company like Walmart that serves 180 million people around the world um, every week uh, can begin to have uh, an effect. So the first place, uh, you know, to talk a little bit about is the greening of the of the supply chain because I think that's you know also where you've probably seen um, you know most of the work um, that we've um, um, that we've done. So we have 60,000 suppliers around the world. Some of them are big, like P&G, where we're probably 19 or 20 percent of their worldwide business, or Unilever, we're probably in the high teens or low 20 percent of their worldwide business. Uh, 80, uh, to, to smaller entities. And we be, really, we started this by looking at packaging. 
we made a, a commitment at the Clinton Global Initiative last year uh, to reduce our packaging and our products by 5%. And we, what we did was to basically launch a website where we asked all of the people who supply for us to start telling us how much packaging they use and to report on how much packaging they're taking out of the system. We have about 3,500 of those 60,000 companies reporting on that website, so we have a long way to go. But when we reach that goal of reducing our packaging by 5%, it'll save 67 million gallons of fuel oil just for us, um, and we'll probably take about $3.4 billion in costs out of the global supply chain. Um, and the, and um, well, I want to give you one sort of example uh, on packaging, uh, which I hope uh, uh, none of you spend that much time with, which is Hamburger Helper. So uh, the CEO of General, of General Mills, which owns Hamburger Helper, was in Bentonville a few weeks ago, and out of his satchel he took two boxes, the old box of Hamburger Helper and the new box of Hamburger Helper. And when you go to the stores, the box of Hamburger Helper will look exactly the same. But if you put them next to each other, the new box is about one-third as smaller than the old box. And what they discovered is that if they change the shape of the noodle so that the noodle is flatter, uh, the, the, um, the noodles will nest in that little foil package inside in a way they never did before. And by just changing the shape of the noodle, which doesn't really cost them any money, change the taste or quality of the product, they'll save about a third uh, of their packaging costs. And it's that kind of innovation when people just go back to their own engineers and say, how can we do this, that people find ways you would never, uh, you would never think um, uh, of doing. The, um, uh, another piece, I think, you know, uh, as we looked at environmentally friendly products that people know about, uh, of course, is compact fluorescent light bulbs. So we announced last year that we were going to um, um, sell uh, 100 million compact fluorescent light bulbs in a year, which we did just last week. We, we passed our goal of selling 100 million CFL bulbs uh, in the U.S., and that is going to save 20 million metric tons of greenhouse gases, and it's going to reduce America's electricity costs by $3 billion. So our customers will save $3 billion, and we'll take out 20 million metric tons of greenhouse gases by selling those 100 million bulbs. And then to show you how our model works on this, we then also went out about two weeks ago we um, started selling private label compact fluorescent bulbs. So before you were basically buying a GE or a Sylvania bulb. Uh, we sourced these in China. We went on a buying trip in China. We took the sustainability value network with us. So NRDC and environmental defense came with us on this China trip to uh, create specs. And we specced out a compact fluorescent bulb uh, that had a dramatically reduced mercury content compared to the previous bulb, and also that changed the way the bulbs were manufactured so there'd be less mercury contamination of the Chinese environment when the bulbs were being made. And now if you go into a Walmart store, you can buy a compact fluorescent bulb, four great value compact fluorescent bulbs for the price of three GE compact fluorescent bulbs. So we're able to come up with a better, environmentally safer product at less cost that we hope more people will buy. And then you also would have seen in the papers that we're now working with local utility companies, so they'll cover the increased cost of the bulb in the first year. So in a sense, you'll get a credit on your utility bill uh, for the upfront price you've paid for these bulbs. So people who don't want to pay the extra, don't want to pay six bucks for bulbs when they could pay two bucks, in a sense, are financing that four dollars um, through their utility companies. Uh, and as utility companies get incentives to save electricity, they have greater incentives to help customers purchase these products um, uh, on their own. Uh, last week at the Clinton Global Initiative, we, we talked about uh, compact detergent. So we've now made a pledge that uh, within a year, we will only sell concentrated detergent at Walmart stores. So all of the Tide and uh, Gain laundry detergent will either be 2x or 3x uh, compacted. So for us, that's 800 million units. We sell 800 million packages of uh, d detergent over the course of three years, and that'll save 400 million gallons of water, 95 million pounds of plastic resin, 125 million pounds of cardboard, um, and just on one of these products, small and mighty oil, we'll also save 20 or 30 million dollars a year, uh, the supply chain and transportation costs. Same exact product, same exact efficacy, no one's paying for those resources, no one's paying to dispose of those resources, the environment doesn't have a place for them to go, no one's paying to transport those resources, no one's paying for the diesel fuel to move them around. People are just saving money throughout the supply chain, and the customer ultimately saves money because all of those things that went into that package aren't there anymore. But to bring the story a little bit back home to what I was mentioning before about um, uh, uh, the customer, you will probably not see that advertised. Uh, as being a sustainable product in any meaningful way because what the customer really cares about is the fact that they're not as heavy as they used to be. So of all of us who've gone into the store and bought these huge containers of water that were detergent and lugged them back to our car and then lugged them back up uh, to wherever we happen to live, 
they're going to sell those not because they're better for the environment. They're going to sell those compacted laundry detergents because they're easier and lighter for people to carry. And it's just an interesting insight as to where the public is. I mentioned our customers. One of the things we have an obligation to do, which we're just learning how to do and not doing nearly as well as we should, is to educate the customers in the store. So we don't do very much in-store signage. We don't do couponing. If you went into this high-efficiency store in, in Kansas City, you'd have no idea you were in the most efficient retail store in the world. Uh, so now we're just trying to do better on this. And so this is the uh, circular that some of you got for the local New Haven store. But you'll see in this week's spread that really for the first time we're trying to really sort of uh, 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 advertise these prices, uh, these, these uh, products uh, to our customers where we, you can see right at the front, you know, at the top, our message. You can help the environment and your budget. So you can save money and live better by buying some of these products. So we have an obligation to now to begin to educate our customer to make these choices on their own. Let me talk for a second about the people who work for us. So we have in the U.S. 1.4 million associates. And with the help of, a guy, of Adam Werbach, who uh, um, some of you may, which is on the cover actually, I guess, of Fast Company a week or two ago, and was, uh, the, uh, uh, was the president of the Sierra Club uh, uh, in his early 20s, he's helping us do a program we call Personal Sustainability Projects, which we offer our associates uh, basically uh, it's an organizing effort, but with tools so that they take on a personal sustainability project. It might be health-related, stopping smoking, losing weight, walking to work. It might be a local recycling project. And we now have about 650,000 of our 1.3 million U.S. associates who've taken this on themselves. And so we're trying to give them the resources they need to make a difference um, in their own lives and also to feel better for, about the company uh, um, where they work. I just really close up. This is a picture of the McKinney, Texas uh, environmental store that I mentioned um, that has a lot of these uh, uh, new attributes. I was there a few weeks ago, and what's interesting to me particularly is that in the four or five hours I was there, uh, there were three other tours going through that building. Other engineering companies, um, other architecture schools, um, people who are using that school really as a laboratory for learning for what they can do so that we could transfer that technology. And also for the community itself to step up. So you know, McKinney, Texas, which is just a bit north of Dallas, you wouldn't think of being as particularly green, uh, uh, is now the home to the first LEED certified car dealership, one of the first platinum LEED certified um, uh, uh, office buildings uh, in America so that you can instill pride in the entire community. Uh, for doing that. I want to leave some time for questions, but so let me just close by saying that, you know, as a company, you know, we think we're making a contribution, but we understand that we're very much at the beginning of this effort, that, you know, the vast majority of what we're trying to do is, you know, is untapped. We know that questions still remain about us as a company. We know, for example, that our carbon footprint is still growing, much slower than it used to be, but still um, still growing. We're a long way from meeting this promise of not having any dumpsters at the stores because we don't generate um, any, any waste. So we've got a long way to go, but I think we've made um, a good beginning. And I think what's important is that, as I mentioned at the beginning about this conflict question, it's clear to everyone who works at Walmart that being a sustainable company has made us a better business. It's reduced our costs. It's made our associates, given them a prouder place to work. It's deepened our relationship with our suppliers, and it's made a difference in the world. And so it's clear that the steps that we've taken um, have made us um, a better company. And I think, you know, I'd urge all of you as you think about, you know, in your own careers where you can make change. You know, for me, uh, as I mentioned, I've worked in seven presidential campaigns. I've worked in the White House. I've worked for two major non-governmental organizations. I've served on the board of three or four. I've worked in business. And I believe that change can come from many places. That's important for companies to be pushed from the outside, and it's important for companies to make change uh, on the inside, um, and that everybody has a role in change. The government obviously has a role in creating regulations so that we'll have a cap-and-trade system on um, greenhouse gases. But then companies uh, have a role for change because they're the ones who have to understand how to get there and will get us there sooner. And NGOs and pressure groups have a role in change uh, because they, um, uh, they create the public environment that gets everybody and creates incentives. But... It's my firm belief that every, you know, everybody's got to have a part in change and that if you, you know, if you basically either write off or derogate any one of those for not being able to do their job, you dramatically reduce the effectiveness of the overall um, uh, program. And that particularly in sustainability, I think even, you know, most, you know, the NGOs certainly that I'm involved with understand the power of the private sector to really uh, uh, drive uh, uh, sustainability forward. So thanks for everybody's time. And with that, I'll be happy to take any questions about this or any other subject I know something about? Please.
Uh, where, I'm sorry? Uh huh. Yeah. I think there is a dis, you know kind of an in, a disparity in terms of where different uh, both the customer and the governments are around the world. So probably where we are, the UK is the and the UK customer is probably the you know the leading driver of sustainability and kind of has a, as a as a consumer has more interest in those issues and also this probably has more questions about the basic rate of consumption. Uh, whereas if you uh, you go into the developing world, China, India, consumption is dramatically on the increase and 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 and. Consumer issues about sustainability, or as you know, even issues at the governmental level, uh, are in a different place. I think the issues that we find um, in um, Central America uh, have a lot to do, if this is answering your question, with sort of the interest of getting people into the global supply chain in a sustainable way. How do you take small farmers in Central America, allow them to be more sustainable, and bring them into the global supply chain? And so I do think that the face of sustainability is different uh, from country to country, and I do think companies look at it uh, have looked at it in different ways. Um, I think the U.S. just happens to be, a, you know, in the Europe or a nexus for this because that's where the world's multinational companies are, and that's where most of this change uh, seems to be occurring. What about from the customer side? And, and, and -sustain about sustainability or on other? About yeah, I think that it, I think that the the customer in the U.K. is looking for. Uh, a sustainable product. They're they're more going to the store and looking for a product with less packaging. Uh, they're more the the Tesco's, uh, the number one retailer over there ourselves, Sainsbury, Marks and Spencer. They've all invested more in making it clear to the customer the sustainable nature of these products. So I think Europe's the furthest along. My sense is that um, the U.S. is pretty far behind in terms of customer demand, and then when you go to the rest of the world, it gets to be even less. I don't. I, I think it's going to be tough to make the deadline. I think that we wanted to set an aspirational goal, and we'll, you know, so people will. You know, sometimes it's not so bad if people say you didn't meet your goal. Um, it makes you strive harder to get there. But I think what's happened is that this is a big undertaking for these suppliers, and so part of this education process is to get them uh, to have the internal processes they know to report, um, so they can even so they even have the information. Um, and then to have them have the internal mechanisms to understand where the cost savings are, and then to have them willing to be transparent about it. So you've got, I think, issues in all of those. They were nervous about transparency because they know that the next conversation we're going to have with them is, you're spending less on packaging, we want to pay you less for the product. Um, they don't want um, to have the competitive disadvantage against another supplier by not being, not, not on the cost side, but just on the packaging side. Um, and sometimes they don't even have the information. So I think it's been a little bit harder than we hoped. Um, but we just got to keep plugging on the thing. And the, you know, the carbon disclosure work will be even harder because, as you know, one of the big issues is that a lot of companies don't even report their total greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so one of the first things we hope this will do is cause our suppliers to have to be uh, more forthcoming in their total uh, inventory, uh, but then trying to get them to understand what the carbon footprint is of a sneaker as opposed to a can of Coke or the you know, Diet Coke versus regular Coke, depending on where it's manufactured. It's a very complicated undertaking. Uh, and so they have got to invest money themselves just in reporting um, and, on, and, and collecting this information. So it's going to be a multi-year process. Packaging thing, I think, has stayed for the most part. It's where it was. The carbon disclosure one, which is why we're doing it with with folks who know about reporting more than we do, I think will be much of a, a, a work in progress. Um, it's it's you know the 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 greenhouse gas protocol to do this reporting is based on a series of sort of you know minor mathematical models because it estimates um, 
uh, energy intensity uh, in different parts of the world. So if it, it has sort of algorithms in there for the process and the location. Because if you're using hydropower, you have less, you know, you're using less carbon uh, than if you're in the Northeast. So the model's got to have all that stuff in there. So if you're making a can of Coke and you want to get the thing right, you actually have to look at each location of the process, the nature of the process, the raw ingredients and where they came from. So if you try and do this, you know, in a meaningful way, it gets very complicated because if you look at all the pieces that go into a sneaker or a can of Coke or a TV set, the transportation, the origin, the nature of the manufacturing process. But if you don't create a system that looks at it at that level of detail, then the companies can't go back and say, where can I get the savings? So they've got to parse it all out at that level of detail because if they don't, they can't have their engineers go back and say, oh, you know, if we move the production process or if we made this change in this worldwide voyage uh, to get to a television set, that's where we could get the efficiencies. And that's why this is going to be hard. And I think it's going to take a long time to get there. Um, because your growth proposition relies on a strong comparable store sales environment, in the current environment like we're seeing now, would you say some store sales challenge your ability to invest in sustainable initiatives? I don't think it does because, it, it, because of the, because I think we're getting it all back in efficiency. So I don't think it has, an, I don't think it changes the economic model of doing it. The money you spend on CapEx has, you know, it kind of comes from a different line, a kind of different analysis than the money you'd spend on sustainability. So when we look at the money we're spending on sustainability, it has a lot to do with the payback for that. You look at the, how you're going to, you know, sort of your CapEx, it has to do with the payback for that. I think the biggest thing that those things do is that it makes it difficult for a management. If you're, if you're a company that has, you know, is dealing with its business, it makes it more difficult for the management team to take on extra tasks because they know that for the most part what they're being measured on is comp store sales or top line growth or margins or something. So, you know, their incentive and their, and, and their sort of pats on the back uh, come from the business performance. So if you go to somebody and say, you know, what we want you to do this month is still have a great business, but we also want you to do all this stuff in packaging. Or, you know what, we want you to change, uh, we want you to work with your suppliers to dramatically increase the minority uh, uh, percentage of, supply, of, of materials you buy from minority suppliers. You just think about your own lives. You know, people don't have the bandwidth when things are rough or tougher to say, that's great. I got to, you know, I got to work even harder on my, you know, on my core courses, but now I'm going to take time to like spend time on these courses I'm just interested in or whatever the analogy is. That's when it gets hard because in the end, people just can't spread themselves. And I think that's why we have an obligation to change and everybody to change the, ins make sure people are rewarded and incentivized both financially, but also, um, so that we have these things like these, quarterly meetings where people can stand up and they can see the CEO put you know, his or her arm around the people who are doing well on sustainability. They can see somebody be promoted because they both managed their business and took on this other job. And that creates other incentives for people to perform. But I think it actually has more of an impact on people's ability as individuals to tackle multidimensional, complicated problems than it does on the pure financing. That's a good question. I don't know if everybody heard it, but just basically are we sort of taking on some of the larger issues outside of sort of product by product kind of promotion in our own footprint? And the answer has been we haven't so far. Um, I think that, you, you know, we do it pretty tangentially by doing the education on CFLs. You're giving people a bit of that message. But I think it's one of the things we have to, to look at and what our right role is. I think, you know, we've sort of said to ourselves that it primarily our the, the most effective role for us is in what we've been doing and in educating our customer base. So I think you'll see more over time as you go into the stores and we're going to begin to use the walmart.com and the web so to, to do so the, those people who seek information can get there. So like one of the little things I'm doing is you went to walmart.com and you wanted to buy a, and you bought a compact fluorescent. You, there's no link there to take you to a sustainability education page. Well, that's an easy thing for us to do, you know, to say click here if you want more information. In fact, if you looked on the page, there's a little thing that says, did you know, but it doesn't go anywhere. It just has a few words. So I think there's a lot more that, you know, that we can do online and other resources. But, uh, you know, I think that question kind of goes back to the other one. It, you know, you try, and I think what we found is you could be the most effective when you, you know, stick to your knitting and take only, and, and really sort of use your business model and drive out from there. 
and we don't have a business model that it has a lot of education. We've been grappling with the same thing in healthcare. So, you know, in healthcare, we've also try to bring our business model to healthcare on $4 generics and on uh, walk-in clinics, and now working with Andy Stern and others on uh, healthcare reform. And we're trying to figure out the same thing there. How much, you know, how much education do we do with our resources of our customers um, on uh, healthcare reform issues? And I think the decision we've made so far is we spend most of our money educating the 1.4 million people who work for us. We figure that's a pretty reasonable footprint, and we've spent less outside. And I think over time, that's something we have to continually look at. And our foundation, one of the things I do is manage our foundation. We, 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 have a, we have a sustainability budget in there, and some of that money does go to, we just put out an RFP last week for folks to do public education on things you can do to uh, reduce, um, to help your own fuel efficiency. You know, simple things like that we always hear about, fill your tires, put nitrogen in your tires instead of, oxygen, instead of air. So we're, you know, we're doing some things, but not like this. It's more like this. Mm-hmm. Been at at yeah. I think it's a very, the whole issue, Melina would know it better than I, has been quite interesting because it, it has, a, we have been able to reduce the price points on certain goods. And what we've found is that the Walmart customer basically will, you know, doesn't want to pay a premium. When they pay a premium, they'll pay it for things that have to do with their children or their health. Very, you know, baby carrots, milk, the, things that they understand intuitively uh, are sort of health related. We, we, we're the world's largest purchaser of organic cotton. We went over to Turkey and we switched entire, tur- uh, uh, not turkey farms, we went over to Turkey and switched entire cotton farms to organic cotton, which is great for Turkey, but all of which sat on the shelves. So, you know, because people don't really feel like paying more uh, for, uh, uh, you know, organic sheets, 600 thread count organic sheets. Is, if you're a Walmart customer, is worth, they, they want to buy 200 thread count sheets, buying 600 thread count organic sheets. We had to give this stuff. If you want a good bargain, you can go buy 600 thread count organic sheets at Walmart because we can't sell them. Um, so there are some of these places where it just you know, hasn't worked. And so I think what we're trying to do is to concentrate the pricing on the places where we think also there's, you know, there's demand. Now, as you know, one of the controversial issues in organics has been, you know, is it correct to have large-scale industrial organic farms or not? Or you know, if you're uh, my old boss, Pat Leahy, comes from Vermont, and you know, in Vermont, you've got farmers who were having a hard time. They found a way to economic success by doing small organic farming, which it was value-added. And now, all of a sudden, you've got, you know, whether it's earthbound, you know, you've got all these large organizations doing milk. So that's, I think, one of the fundamental questions to which there's no simple, straightforward answer. So if we want to have, you know, for the most part, you know, if you, even when you factor in transportation costs, um, you know, it's, it's, you probably need some large-scale organic producers, it also helps the environment to move those large-scale organic, inorganic producers to organic producers. But you have a trade-off on the impact on small farming. And I think the answer to that one is just not, not clear. You know? And I think that's one of the ongoing kind of debates in this. A lot of people you know, who don't like... I mean, we have never tried as Walmart to have anything to do with what the government calls organic. So we're not out there trying to change the definition of organic. We get accused of that, but we're not. But it's still, I think, a fundamentally correct debate as to whether or not there should be... You know, or, you know, how do you manage the impact that that has on small organic farms? I don't know the answer. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's one of those things that uh, it's not, you know, 
that's where the management story should actually be uh, about how you create these incentives within the organization, a structure within an organization. You can have a 1.4 million person organization that's known for, you know, everyday low prices and being rural and not on the cutting edge of issues, take on something and do it in that way. And I do think it has to do with these sustainability, these value networks and how they're structured and the staffing that goes into them. It has to do with the incentives and rewards and recognition that people get. Um, it has to do with the sort of macro environment where, you know, if you're environmental defense or NRDC, you kind of have, see the model changing yourself and you're open to this conversation. Now, the Sierra Club doesn't go to meetings with us. So, you know, Carl Pope, who runs the Sierra Club, who I've known for a long time, doesn't, won't, you know, won't go to meetings with Walmart. So, that, you know, that's his choice. But for the most part, you know, most of the other sort of NGOs in the environmental area will, from Greenpeace to environmental defense and, and RDC. And I, th and I think it's because, you know, they have the same frustrations with government. So if they've spent their whole careers, like I have, you know, sort of trying to get lobbying the U.S. Congress to do something, that's a pretty tiresome task. You don't feel that good. Of, you know, you could be, you don't have a lot of things to feel pretty good about that. So if you're looking to make change, you know, you have to change your own model. Um, and uh, you see the scale. And then if you, you know, it's like everything else, I think, in life. If the first meeting goes well, you're willing to have the second meeting. If you're treated with respect at the first meeting, you come to the next meeting. If you, um, if you respect compromise and people take the time to explain things, then you get respect. And, you know, sometimes we disagree. So, you know, for example, we were in the negotiations for, uh, for something called U.S. CAP, which was the first time that a, a number of companies came together to beef, to publicly beef for a cap and trade system. And in the end, we said, look, you know, we're willing, it was three chapters. The first chapters were for cap and trade. And chapter three was like 87 pages of intricate, stuff to, that was kind of the pet projects of, uh, uh, of all the sectors that were in there. And we said, look, we just can't, we, we, we're not comfortable in signing that because unlike a utility company, we don't have anybody who understands these 87 pages. So we're not, we, we can't, and we're not, you know, we're a store. We're not, we don't really know what the utility company should do or, in terms of uh, that. And so, you know, we, they were unhappy we didn't sign, but we kind of worked it through. We're in a conversation now about one of our toughest issues, which is, our carbon cap. We have not agreed to a, a, a you know, sort of uh, keeping ourselves at the 2005 baseline level because we have this dramatic growth. So we're in this conversation with, uh, you know, with uh, NGOs and with ourselves because what we're basically going to them and saying is, well, okay, think about this with us. We've got an 8 million ton kind of bogey between what we can do and where you want us, where, what, where we are on our path today and kind of what you want us to do. So we can take that eight million. We can spend, and we don't want to do any offsets because we don't believe paying for offsets is, you know, meaningful. That you can't do it year after year in carbs. So we don't want to pay for offsets. So we can spend X amount of money to get rid of the eight million tons. But you know what? If we spend half that money on ourselves and got rid of four million tons, took that same amount of money and spent it on customer education and in-store signage and doubling the speed at which the packaging people went on our scorecard, we could save eighty million tons. So, do you want us to? spend all that money and get 8 million tons, or should we spend the same money and get 80 million tons? There should be some, some compromise in that. Or as you look at what happens with these, one of the big issues on credits in carbon is that everybody wants a piece of the credit. So, you know, why all of a sudden these utility companies are so interested in this? Some of them is because when they do energy conservation, they want that credit. They don't want the, per, you know, they want to own that credit so they can re, either apply it against a coal-fired power plant or resell it themselves. One of the big policy questions is, you know, if we go, if a company like Walmart spends money on customer education to get people to buy 100 million light bulbs, who gets the credit? Should we get a little bit of that credit in the credit system so that it has a monetary value to us, so that there's a further incentive to spend that 100 million dollars with this great leverage or not? So that's a long answer to say that on some of these contentious issues, if you can get people to just, you know, kind of open it up on both sides and, uh, you know, you can make a lot more progress, but sometimes, you know, just oftentimes just depends on the personality of the people in charge. Any other? Um, but there's still, you know, a lot of studies out there 
um, about the Walmart effect mm -hmm. by economists. You know, people buy more socks and more underwear than they really need because... We call that the Costco effect. Well, I think, you know, the core question about the business model is clearly one that's kind of at the bottom of a lot of the public concern, you know, even though I say it's actually much more limited public concern than, you know, most people would sort of start off thinking. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, so the business model at Walmart is based on everyday low costs and everyday low prices. And basically, the business model is saying we're going to make fairly low margins, and when we save money, we're going to give a lot of it back to the customer. Um, so when we can produce uh, uh, a light bulb cheaper, we're going to not, not put it all in the margin, but we're going to give a lot of it back to the customer because that increases sales. That's what our, the brand is. We want everybody to go to the store and trust that they're going to get these low prices, you know, without having to think about it. And that also means that we have competitive uh, uh, wage rates for people. And I think, and it also means that we are encouraging people to come to the store and buy things. Um, and so, I, you know, I think those those two fundamental issues, in a sense, that we're going to continue to have competitive wages, because we benchmark our wages in the U.S. all the time. We pay more, you know, we pay a quarter more than the competition does, so we can, you know, we pay above the minimum wage and we for an increase in the minimum wage, but the people think we pay, you know, many people think we should be paying more. Um, the, um, and consumption, I think, are just, you know, are, are two parts of the business model that, frankly, we're, you know, we're, we're not dramatically changing, and some people think, some people think we should. I think our view right now is on the consumption side is, you know, that's who we are, and we're trying, what we're trying to do is to help people consume in a more sustainable way. Um, and we also think that people, in a sense, make, those, their, you know, make their own consumption choices and that it's, it's somewhat paternalistic to go to uh, people who struggle week to week and want to send their kids to, you know, to school with the clothes like their neighbors do uh, and want to have a flat panel TV like their rich friends do to start telling them that, that, you know, that we're going to intervene and tell them they can't make those choices. But I think those are all legitimate, you know, conversations uh, to have. You know, if you look at some of the, you know, I've, one of the things I do at, at Walmart is I'm kind of the executive sponsor, I guess, of our sustainability efforts in China. And that's where a lot of this, you know, comes into play. And so, you know, are we going to lower, you know, do we have a role in lowering the consumption increased consumption in China? I don't know if we do, and we're, probably, and we're not trying to do that. I think what we see our role is in greening our supply chain in China. So can we go to factories that produce for us, and can we help them reduce their energy use and improve their uh, use of resources so they pollute less? And I think that's kind of where we see our contribution, but we're, we, you know, so we're not so far down the road that we're trying to reduce people's consumption. Uh, we have time for one, one more question. If there is one. Perfect. I've exhausted everyone. Um, thanks, everybody, for your time. It's nice to meet everybody. Leslie Dock is the Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Government Relations for Walmart Stores, Inc. His speech was sponsored by the Yale Sustainable Food Project. For more information about the Yale Sustainable Food Project, go to www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.